My name is James Nagel. Welcome to The Irish Nation Lives. In the aftermath of political infighting and a series of military defeats, Field Marshal Sir John French resigned as Commander-in-Chief of the British Expeditionary Forces in December of 1915. His replacement, Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, held him responsible for the Allied defeat at the Battle of Luz, but French was still appointed to command the Home Forces and was even created a Viscount for his service. The front lines of Europe demanded a constant supply of manpower, and French spent most of his time battling to keep the home forces operational, as its men and resources were requisitioned for the war effort. But he would also be required to turn his attention to events in Ireland. In early 1916, most of those in the British administration centred in Dublin Castle had convinced themselves that all was well, but Major General Friend, the general officer commanding the army in Ireland, was less confident. After failing to convince the administration to ban the Irish volunteers, he took his concerns to French, who met with the Chief Secretary, Augustin Burrell, in February. Burrell assured him that the volunteers did not pose much of a threat, and regardless, French had no troops to spare for deployment to Ireland. By early April, even Major General Friend believed that the situation had improved greatly, and although reports stated otherwise, Dublin Castle agreed that the chance of an insurrection was unlikely. So, it came as a great surprise to many when, on Monday the 24th of April 1916, the Irish volunteers seized key buildings throughout Dublin and proclaimed an independent Irish Republic. French immediately deployed two infantry brigades to Ireland and suggested that Friend be replaced with Major General Sir John Maxwell. He also met with John Redmond, the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, who warned him that the army should use minimal force to restore order so as not to swing public support behind the rebels. French, however, would not heed this advice. Following the surrender of the rebel forces on the 29th of April, Maxwell drew up lists of the main leaders and began a series of rushed court-martials, during which 90 prisoners would be sentenced to death by being shot. As early as the 3rd of May, Following the execution of the first three leaders and with a lengthy queue behind them, the Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, wrote to French to express his worry. He told French that he was a little surprised and perturbed by the drastic action of shooting so many of the rebel leaders. Any wholesale punishment by death might easily cause a revulsion of feeling in this country and lay up a store of future trouble in Ireland. French passed this message on to Maxwell, but also informed him that he had no intention of interfering with Maxwell's decisions, effectively approving his course of action. Execution by firing squad continued in the grounds of Kilmainham and in Cork, until Asquith called a halt in mid-May. By then, 15 men were dead, and as he and John Redmond had feared, public opinion was rallying behind the aims of the revolutionaries. Ireland was temporarily pacified by deportations and internment in the aftermath of the Rising, but the situation destabilised in April of 1918. The British government was desperate for reinforcements following the German Spring Offensive, and moved to introduce conscription to Ireland, which had previously been exempt due to fears that it would cause unrest. Both General Sir Brian Mahan, who had replaced Maxwell as commander of the army in Ireland, and the RIC Inspector General Sir Joseph Byrne, argued that to enforce conscription, the country must be put under some kind of military control. Law would have to be dropped because, for the first fortnight at least, there would be bloodshed and a great deal of suffering to the civil population in every way. 
Having seen Sinn Féin grow in support at successive by-elections, the new Chief Secretary for Ireland, Henry Duke, warned that conscription would consolidate into one mass of antagonism all the nationalist elements in Ireland. When the Military Service Bill was rushed through Parliament on the 16th of April, he resigned instead of facing the task of introducing martial law. Determined to push through with conscription, the government appointed French as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Though historically it was a largely symbolic position, French agreed to take the job on the condition that he be regarded as a military viceroy at the head of a quasi-military government. He was sworn in on the 11th of May 1918 at Dublin Castle and immediately set about trying to destroy Sinn Féin. Under French's orders, over 70 members of various nationalist, cultural and political movements were arrested on charges of conspiring with Germany to organise another rebellion in Ireland. Known as the German plot, it was largely the result of poor intelligence, and the arrests caused a severe headache for the government. Constant calls were made to bring the prisoners to trial, because it was well known that there was no evidence against them. Far from breaking resistance to conscription, French's actions strengthened it, and the matter was quietly dropped following the entry of the United States into the war. As the former Chief Secretary Henry Duke had warned, the conscription crisis saw many disparate elements of the Irish nationalist movement unify behind Sinn Féin, and many of those who had been arrested in May were victorious in the post-war elections held in December. Those at liberty declared their intention to abstain from Westminster, and on the 21st of January 1919, they held the first meeting of a separatist Irish parliament, Dáil Éireann. French made no attempt to stop the meeting, believing that the Irish would make fools of themselves and that they would take their seats in Westminster when they wanted their pay. Instead, they would create a highly effective counter-government which would undermine British authority in Ireland, and in response, French would suppress the Dáil and Sinn Féin by the end of the year. Previous to French's appointment, the Lord Lieutenant had been the symbolic head of the Irish government and the representative of the King in Ireland. Under him sat the Chief Secretary, who was appointed by and held a seat on the British Cabinet. He usually remained in London, while day-to-day administration was carried out by the Under Secretary at Dublin Castle. The centre of English and British rule in Ireland since 1204, by the early 1900s Dublin Castle was regarded as a sink of jobbery and corruption. Following the resignation of Henry Duke over the conscription crisis, the largely unknown Edward Short was appointed as Chief Secretary. French quickly made it clear who was in charge, writing to tell him, I accepted the office of Lord Lieutenant on the clear understanding that I was to be the de facto as well as de jure Governor of Ireland, that I was to be responsible for the government in Ireland while you were to represent the Irish government in the House of Commons. To compound the changed nature of his role, French was even appointed to the cabinet, and instead of communicating with them through short, the colonial secretary, Walter Long, was assigned to him as a special liaison officer. Having served as chief secretary over a decade ago, Long was the closest thing the British had to an Irish expert. Obsessed with the idea that Sinn Féin was a pawn of international Bolshevism, he and French would work closely together, and he would exert a great deal of influence on French's thoughts and actions. Dublin Castle had long been the preserve of hardline unionists, but in recent decades attempts had been made at greening the administration. 
French's appointment in mid-1918 of James McMahon, a Roman Catholic with nationalist sympathies as undersecretary, was seen as a symbol of progress and reform. But McMahon soon fell foul of Long, who feared that this appointment would lead to the active participation of the Roman Catholic hierarchy in government. French himself soon turned on McMahon, declaring that he was simply the mouthpiece for the most rabid of the Irish priests. Owing to his violently Catholic tendencies, steps must be taken at once to cut McMahon off from any access to papers or documents which really matter. Motivated largely by sectarianism and ego, under Long's influence French would try to replace numerous officials throughout 1919 and invest power in a number of advisory committees that he had established. Before coming to Ireland, he had replaced Sir Brian Mahan with Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Shaw as General Officer Commanding the Army in Ireland. McMahon couldn't be fired without upsetting moderate nationalist opinion, and French needed him for his contacts with the Roman Catholic hierarchy, so instead he was sidelined and his functions were handed off to another official. French also complained to Lloyd George about Edward Short, who was then replaced in January of 1919 by the junior war minister, Ian McPherson. French found him to be much more agreeable, and McPherson wrote to Lloyd George, blaming Short for the poor state in which he found the Irish administration. Next up was Sir Joseph Byrne, the Inspector General of the Royal Irish Constabulary. Decades of low pay, poor pensions and a lack of resources had left the RIC utterly unprepared for the IRA offensive which began in 1919, but French placed the blame firmly on Byrne. Faced with a manpower crisis following the Dole boycott in April of 1919, Walter Long suggested that the RIC be reinforced with ex-British servicemen demobilised after the war, but Byrne rejected this idea on the grounds that it would be impossible to get them to abide by police discipline. Long informed the Prime Minister that Byrne had lost his nerve and blamed the presence of a Roman Catholic at the head of the RIC for a leakage in high quarters which has led to the defeat of justice. In December, following an assassination attempt which very nearly claimed his life, French pushed Byrne to take a leave of absence and appointed Chief Commissioner T.J. Smith from Belfast as Acting Inspector General. Smith's first act was to advertise for ex-servicemen to join the ranks of the RIC. A uniform shortage led to them being nicknamed the Black and Tans, and as Byrne had predicted, they did not abide by police discipline. French had been appointed Lord Lieutenant when the British government needed someone to force through conscription, and following the end of the war, he was given relatively free reign to introduce coercive measures to combat the IRA. With peace negotiations ongoing in Versailles, the cabinet viewed the situation in Ireland as an unimportant distraction. But by early 1920, there was a realisation that some form of self-determination would be needed. Coercion was failing, and Lloyd George began the slow transit of the Government of Ireland bill through the House of Commons. Dublin Castle had largely been ignored and left to French to oversee, but an administrative catastrophe in April of 1920 finally convinced the British government that radical reform was needed. In January of 1920, the army had been given authority to arrest and deport insurgents under the Defence of the Realm Act, and French used the outrage caused by the recent attempt on his life to push for a mass-scale roundup. 
That month alone, over 1,000 raids were carried out in Dublin, and nationwide, hundreds of arrests took place, of Sinn Féin members, IRA volunteers, and many who had little to no connection with the nationalist movement. In April, 90 prisoners in Mountjoy, led by Pather Clancy, began a hunger strike, demanding political status. Crowds of up to 20,000 people surrounded the prison, and the Irish Trade and General Workers Union declared a general strike in support of the prisoners. Dublin Castle was unsure how to respond. Attempts to force-feed Thomas Ash in 1917 had killed him, turning him into a Republican martyr. A decision was finally made to release any prisoners who hadn't been charged with a crime, but due to an administrative error, all prisoners including a number of convicted felons, were released. This was a massive propaganda coup for the Republicans, who claimed victory in the face of government weakness, and it served to further damage the morale of the Royal Irish Constabulary. Heavily embarrassed by the whole affair, the British government appointed Sir Warren Fisher to head up a commission to examine the Dublin Castle administration. Even before it reported back, major changes were being made in British policy towards Ireland. Sir Frederick Shaw, who owed his position to French's patronage, was replaced by Sir Neville Macready as head of the army. Macready wasn't altogether happy with his appointment. When Macpherson was made chief secretary the previous year, Macready had written to him, I loathe the country you are going to and its people with a depth deeper than the sea and more violent than that I feel against the Bosch. Macready was offered joint command of the army and the police in Ireland, which he turned down, suggesting instead that a special police advisor be appointed with a deputy to act as head of intelligence. The first role was given to Lieutenant General Sir Hugh Tudor, who got the job mostly because he was close friends with Winston Churchill. Tudor assured the government that a heavily militarised RIC could restore law and order if given proper support. In August, the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act was passed, shortly after Tudor recruited the first 500 ex-officers to a new auxiliary police force he had created. Nicknamed Tudor's Tufts, the auxiliary division of the Royal Irish Constabulary, in conjunction with the Black and Tans, would carry out acts of brutality against the Irish Republican Army and the general populace. With British government support, Tudor oversaw a policy of sanctioned reprisals, which included torture, murder, and the widespread destruction of property. As his assistant and head of intelligence, he chose his friend, Brigadier General Sir Ormond Winther. Like many others who would turn their hand to intelligence matters in Ireland, Winther thought little of the intellect of the Irish people. The Irishman, without any insult being intended, somewhat resembles a dog, and understands firm treatment. But, like the dog, he cannot understand being cajoled with a piece of sugar in one hand whilst he receives a beating from a stick in the other. Winther's early endeavours were an interesting combination of ingenuity and an utter lack of practical knowledge. An immediate problem faced by British intelligence was that they had very few photographs with which to identify IRA members. Winther proposed remedying this by photographing every single person in the country, front and back. This idea was eventually dropped for logistical reasons, but did lead to the establishment of a photographic section which resulted in the apprehension of active IRA men. In conjunction with Sir Basil Thompson, 
the Director of Intelligence at the Home Office, he set up an address in London to which people could send anonymous information. This was abandoned when the IRA started sending letters making accusations against well-known loyalists. More successful was his Raid Bureau, which created a centralised index of all information captured on raids nationwide. By centralising the collection and analysis of information, Winther was able to build up a better picture of what the IRA and the counter-state Republican government was doing, leading to the capture of valuable targets and further raids. Following the failure of his own spying operation, Sir Basil Thompson concluded that all future agents sent from England should be under Winther's control, ending his involvement with Irish intelligence and making Winther top dog. He built up an efficient operation which began to cause serious trouble for the IRA. On the 21st of November 1920, a number of his men were among 13 British soldiers and police shot dead by the Dublin Brigade and the squad. Fisher's commission into Dublin Castle reported back that the administration was in absolute chaos, describing it as woodenly stupid and quite devoid of imagination. This started off a round of radical reform of the castle itself, as well as security and intelligence policy. Ill health was used as an excuse to force out Ian McPherson, who was replaced by Sir Hammer Greenwood, an uninspiring Canadian-born barrister described by one colleague as being incapable of handling more than one idea at a time. The nature of the job meant that Greenwood spent very little time in Ireland, and real power was now invested in the new Joint Undersecretary Sir John Anderson and the new Assistant Undersecretary Alfred Cope. They would oppose coercion and Tudor's official reprisal policy while building contacts within Sinn Féin. Anderson was charged with implementing the Government of Ireland Act when it came into force, and Cope would be regarded as playing a key role in securing the truce, which brought the War of Independence to an end on the 11th of July 1921. Just two men survived the purge of the Dublin Castle administration. The first was Lord French. Following McPherson's removal, French turned on him, blaming him for the state of Dublin Castle and even claiming that it was he who was responsible for ostracising James McMahon. His position was restored to one that was largely symbolic, and he would be kept out of all major decision-making going forward. With elections to the parliaments of Northern and Southern Ireland coming up, French was ordered to relinquish the position of Lord Lieutenant at the end of April 1921 to Lord Edmund Talbot, a Roman Catholic who it was hoped would be more acceptable to Irish opinion. French departed for London, but with his military career clearly drawing to a close, he hoped to be able to return to live in Ireland. He considered himself to be an Irishman and had purchased two county houses there. In March of 1922, as Ireland lurched towards civil war, the Lord Lieutenant told him that his presence in the country would be a disturbing factor, and in early 1923 his house in Drumdoe, County Roscommon, was raided with most of the furniture, pictures and cutlery stolen. French died in May of 1925 without ever setting foot in Ireland again. The other person to survive the reorganisation of Dublin Castle was Sir James McMahon. Following the changes in 1920, McMahon continued on as Joint Undersecretary with Sir John Anderson, but had none of his former functions returned to him. Instead, his task was to build contacts with Sinn Féin and the Roman Catholic hierarchy and prepare the ground for a peace settlement. 
After the narrow passage of the Anglo-Irish Treaty through Dáil Éireann in 1922, Dublin Castle's law adviser, William Wiley, wrote to him, If there is any credit due to anyone for setting up the Free State, it is due to you and you alone. His final task before retirement was to oversee, after 718 years, the withdrawal of the British administration from Dublin Castle. Following the building's formal handover to Michael Collins, it was McMahon who introduced the departmental heads to the new ministers of the Irish regime. While Dublin Castle was now staffed by men who believed in a peaceful solution to the Irish question, Ireland was about to enter the bloodiest and most violent period of the War of Independence. The British government refused any suggestion that they should meet or negotiate with Sinn Féin, and Lloyd George was adamant that the Government of Ireland Act would be accepted by the Irish people, or it would be forced on them. Insisting that Sinn Féin and the IRA were a disloyal minority which did not have the backing of the Irish people, the British government demanded that they be crushed before any measure of self-determination be introduced. Tudor's auxiliaries were given tacit government support to wage a campaign of terror against the civilian population in the hopes it would discourage them from supporting the separatists. At the same time, Dublin Castle was making contacts with the Republican movement and putting out peace feelers. For the next year, the Irish people would be cajoled with a piece of sugar in one hand while getting a beating from a stick in the other. But this time, they bit back. Accorda. Thank you for joining me on The Irish Nation Lives. Slong of all.